This is Mutant, and you're listening to Dialogues at the End of Democracy. In the political environment we occupy today, to be liberal is to be ostensibly standing for what we colloquially call democratic values. Yet liberalism and that other L word it swears by, the law, not only have no response to this catastrophic moment in global politics and to this mutation in democracy, they are perhaps the fuel of this mutation. Welcome back to Mutant, where we are, episode by episode, returning to ourselves a language with which to understand and mount a meaningful resistance to this global moment in which, as my dialogant Eshwari Kumar puts it, man has swallowed the citizen. And I want to begin, Eshwari, by really asking you, the law is so now insidiously a part of our lives that there has been no meaningful deconstruction, I think, for most of us who follow the precepts of law and order of the law itself. And I wanted you to begin by deconstructing the law and our relation to it. That might be a good point to start the conversation on the broader philosophical horizon that we want to traverse in Mutant. And really, the word there that comes to mind or the or the philosophical position, if not doctrine that comes to mind, obviously when you frame it as such, is is the question of liberalism. And I'm sure we will, in this episode, have more time to unpack liberalism. But underneath it, as you very rightly say, is the question of, is the question of the liberal subject. Is the question, therefore, one might say, also not only of the liberal subject, but the modern subject. Therefore, the question arises not simply of one philosophical position, but of the modern political horizon in which this philosophical position we call liberalism becomes something of a universalism. That is the core idea as I hear you frame our episode today uh, that we need to begin deconstructing why and how, for example, does being a liberal matter today? Why and how uh, has liberalism come to stand as, you know, democracy's last stand itself when so much in liberalism has a, a very peculiar, if at times not downright antagonistic relationship to democracy? And we need to understand that anomaly. To understand that anomaly is to, as I was saying, is to then unpack the relationship between liberalism and law. Because it is in law, within law, and most importantly by law, that the modern subject comes to be liberal or not, democratic or not, capitalistic or not. It is always in relationship to the law that we become we became and that we might remain modern or not. So the question is therefore not the more seemingly important ask, which is what is law, but rather what does law yield? What does law yield to? 
but also what does law make of us? How does it make the human subject? And perhaps more importantly for mutant as we go forward, what does the law break in the human subject? How does law break the human as such? You've just clarified something very powerfully because I think we all see the law as something that makes us, you know, or when I say we in the modern political form, you understand the law as being the site of order. But what does the law break in us? What does the law break in the human? And what does using the idea of the law as the governing way through which to be modern break in the human? The fascinating thing about the law is not that it is one among different parts of the modern subject. The fascinating thing about law is that it is constitutive of the modern subject. Insofar as we are modern, insofar as we became even democratic or let alone liberal, uh, law was always the fundamental moral scaffolding on which human subjectivity or political subjectivity was raised. One of the issues we need to fully grapple with is, is this binary we live with in our political tradition and our political discourse is that the law breaks and makes the subject as if these two things happen separately or happen in degrees, or happen at one place differently than they happen at another place. Instead, I think underlying your question is this very powerful awareness that we must come to together if we are to save democracy, is that the law makes and breaks the subject at the same time. It forces or subordinates the human subject to a political order at the very moment it creates an obedient citizen out of it. So these are not two moments, but a unitary function of the law that it will break and make the citizen. It will break the human in order to make a subject. That is how law enters life and the defining moral impulse there to which uh, my sense is we will need an entire episode when we talk about government and guilt. The defining moral impulse there is the guilt. Law makes the human subject obedient by guilt. At the heart of law is not justice. At the heart of law is the will to punish. And it is when this will to punish in law becomes a pervasive political impulse, when it becomes a large-scale mass phenomenon that we leave democracy and enter into what we will call neo-democracy. The idea that law is now here not to protect the vulnerable, law is here not to be responsible to those who are outnumbered, but instead law is here to punish those who break it. When punishing or punishment becomes the guiding impulse or force of law, to use uh, Jacques Derrida's expression, when punishment becomes the guiding force in and of law, we have left the realm of human freedom. We have entered into what liberals call, and this is the distinction we want to make, what liberals call the rule of law. B.R. Ambedkar in Annihilation of Caste, a text that we will keep returning to, a text that we've done uh, some work on in our previous episode, uh, has this brilliant formula where he says, it is by principle that you live. 
It is the principle of living that lets you live. It is the principle that you abide by, a principle that is responsible to the other, a principle that believes that your freedom is never greater than that of the other. Opposed to the principle, Ambedkar argues, is the rule, the law. And you can have only two relationships with the rule of law. You either break the rule or the rule will break you. Now we have a name for this relationship to the rule of law in India. And now globally, increasingly, we are aware that caste is that name of that relationship with the law. Caste is not simply one system among others. Caste is the moral law. Caste is not simply a rule of law. Caste is a system of unwritten laws. And that, I think, is the beginning of our awareness the moment we say that, that there is a disaggregate in law. There is something both irreducible, even insolubly violent about law, but that to understand that violence is to try and disentangle these two vectors along which law operates. One, through a system of unwritten rules that we all follow, and others, that we follow under the rubric of or abide or adhere to under the rubric of the rule of law. So when we say what is law, we are basically saying what can we break the law into? And so we break the law into a system of unwritten laws. Um, in the Kantian tradition, following some of the strands in European thought, we can call it the moral law. Remember, in a previous episode, we, call, we talked briefly about Mariada. In the Indian traditions, that is what Mariada is, the system of a punitive disciplinary injunctions that we follow tacitly, unspokenly. Mariada is so invisible, so insidious, so pernicious that it comes into or it appears and comes into the world only when you have transgressed it. It's not a word you use as a matter of general obedience or in a, in a time of general obedience to the law. It is when someone transgresses the system of unwritten laws that Mariada appears on our horizon and reminds us that we need to surrender to it. That surrender is the moral law. The human subject is not only broken by that surrender, there is no human subject political subject, and I would say a liberal subject, without that surrender to the law. In order to understand the relationship between liberalism and law, as you were proposing in the beginning, is to understand, therefore, of not simply liberalism's relationship to that defining concept, which is liberty, but also to liberalism's problematic relationship with something that figures like Arendt and Ambed could talk about, which is freedom. And at stake in this disjuncture is this very profound difference between freedom and liberty. There's two or three compelling strands emerging from what you just said. And I want to begin by picking up possibly an oblique one. The idea of liberty and the idea of the modern subject in relation to the law often seems to center around a notion of property. And I say property as in including you are encouraged to see yourself as property, sometimes belonging to you or sometimes belonging to someone else. Is property where law and liberalism converge? 
is liberalism always attached to that language of ownership rather than freedom, in which even exercising your freedom is an act of staking claim or ownership of something, of yourself. Yeah, and that will take us to two different ways of thinking about liberalism itself or two different points of emphasis within liberalism. But let's make a historical uh, point straight away in response to your question about property, which is that liberalism is essentially a doctrine of and for property. It emerges as a philosophical doctrine to manage the modern question of property. Liberalism is the philosophical architecture of the modern property law. It is the philosophical horizon that shapes and is shaped by, and therefore, to bring another important word here, legitimize the modern commercial society. You cannot imagine liberalism as this abstract system of values as liberals would like to believe. Instead, liberalism is indissociable from the idea that the markets will solve the human problems. Uh, that in, in the end, it is through property, it's through redistribution of property, it is through managing access, it is through, in fact, curtailing access, that you will, in the end, allow humanity a decent pursuit of its happiness. So, historically speaking, the idea that somehow liberalism can be thought of as a system of values and be forgotten as a system of property management is, is a fantasy. Liberalism cannot dissociate itself from the lure of, its love of, and perhaps most importantly, its justification for property rights. Uh, we today assume that universal adult franchise is a given is a liberal given. It takes liberalism 200 years to come to terms with the very idea of universal adult franchise. Voting rights were restricted to people who owned property, right? So those are not necessarily liberal values. Liberal values come after liberalism or uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a peculiar inversion in which a philosophical position appears out of a whole paradox in which this system tries to overwrite its initial moment or its initial origin story. So in, in, in many ways, the question here would not simply be about whether liberalism can dissociate itself from or can associate itself with only people who have property. Like any democratic value, liberal values also change over time. And universal adult franchise becomes an acceptable norm and form of liberal democracy. But our real concern is how those earlier moments in which property rights become intrinsic to liberal values, how has that initial moment survived and what mark it has left on the liberal theory of government itself? And what does it actually yield in human subjects who have no property? What has liberalism got to give to those who have been dispossessed, who have been colonized, who have been outnumbered, whose houses or homes have been taken away? What does liberalism have to give to them? And more importantly, perhaps more viscerally, what do liberals have to say to those who are most vulnerable? 
those who have been exiled, those migrants on the sea who die every day and liberalism offers no response, simply looks away, right? Does liberal indifference, our collective indifference, let us say, uh, why blame liberals alone? Does our collective indifference have something to do with the fact that our political modernity was grounded in the sacrosanct idea that we were not fully human as long as we did not have property, as long as we did not own something, including our own personhood? And I think the, the fundamental problem that democracies today stare at is therefore also a problem of property, is also a problem of law's relationship to those with property. Because law, remember, insofar as it was law at all, or what we today call the rule of law, is always a law to manage property and more importantly to secure property. The security of property is the primary preoccupation of the liberal order. International institutions, trade laws, think of all the laws that manage high sea traffic. All the high sea traffic laws are about either battleships or about movement of goods. When human subjects perish in high seas, they don't even belong to anyone. No country is held accountable, no nation state is responsible. And these dead human beings who land and appear and float onto our coastlines belong to nobody. So when I hear you ask about property, I also hear you ask a different question, which is, if this is law in complete thrall of property, and if property is constitutive of the human subject, why do we surrender to the rule of law? Why do we remain or continue to be enchanted by the rule of law? Why do we conflate the rule of law with our freedom? And this is where I think guilt becomes important because guilt is the driving force in legitimizing law or the rule of law as the very logic of modern subjectivity. Guilt is enigmatic. It is not always clearly definable, but guilt is also that through which law enters life. The apparatus we call personhood or simply the person. And the person is not simply one. It's a whole apparatus of values, of virtues and vices regulated by the law. The apparatus we call personhood or simply the person stands not only on the certitude of the law, the certainty of the law, which is its very edifice, nor simply on its obedience to the law, which is a norm. We all obey the law, but also on guilt. Guilt is the psychic life of power. It is the law's most invisible and most explicit instrument and its most oblique articulation at the same time. Guilt is fear made invisible. We can't dissociate property from guilt. Think of why so many of the slaves who were brought to the Americas lived in perennial slavery. Not simply because they were afraid or they were weak. God knows they could do uh, infinite hours of hard physical labor. They live because they were not even fully their own property. And even after abolition, and caste is, is, is that persistence of servitude, you are never free within that regime of unspoken laws. 
It's that enigma that guilt is. It is that kind of surrender that, that guilt produces. You spoke just a few moments ago about migrants washed up at sea, belonging to nobody. And you spoke now of slavery. And in a sense, I'm trying to tie a few different strands together that you have spoken of. Is it an oversimplification to say that the law governs those who own property and the unwritten law governs those who have nothing? The reason I ask this is because in the legal framework, caste does not exist in India anymore, or rather is outlawed, you know, or racial uh, discrimination is outlawed in the United States. As recently as a few days ago, we are told we no longer need affirmative action because racial discrimination does not exist. The experience of caste and of race happens outside the law and has nowhere to go because it is also already outlawed. And, and so my, my real question is, if the law guarantees rights, but if the experience of rightlessness happens outside it, what does one do? What does that subject do who is rightless, but whose rights are not written into law? And they are one and the same time constitutive of his subjectivity or her subjectivity. This is the, the, the tragic enigma that Hannah Arendt tries to capture in her work, The Origins of Totalitarianism, when she gives us this expression, the right to have rights. For Arendt, the primary, the, the, the only inalienable right that every human being should have is the right to have some rights. And she keeps a very low bar for this right. All she's saying is that a human being, in order to even be considered human, should have this one fundamental right of not being expelled from humanity itself. In that sense, it's a fairly tautological idea. What she's saying is the only thing that keeps us human is a company of human beings, is a community in which we have the right to appear, in which we have the right to be heard, in which we have the right to belong. And that right, ironically, no nation state can guarantee. In fact, within the realm of the nation state, um, within the logic of national sovereignty, you tend to have rights only insofar as you belong to or stay within the borders of that nation state. The moment you're expelled, the moment you are rendered what we call under the modern legal regime stateless, you also are stripped of your citizenship and therefore lose any sense of belonging to humanity itself. So when Arendt calls uh, this right simply, very simply and even poignantly, the right to have rights, what she's saying and that this is why it is so relevant to, to migrants who perish on the high seas. Who are they subjects of? Who are they subject to? To nobody. Because they don't even belong to humanity. Now, see, the paradox here is that you belong to humanity or you are even fully human. Your life is even worthy of being lived. Your life is even livable, let alone your death, something worthy of being mourned for only insofar as you are subject to a legal regime. 
you are legitimately or adequately human only when you are within the ambit of the law. This is what we started by saying. We started by saying is law is not one among other things that makes us human. Law is what brings humanity into existence. And the moment you are outside of the ambit of the law, the moment you are outside the control of the sovereign, you lose your humanity. Your life is now not worthy of even being mourned. Your life is barely even counted as life. Just as recently as two years ago, the world's largest liberal democracy has started something that we would not even consider thinkable within the rule of law. They started undercounting their own dead. There was a systematic attempt by elected officials within elected governments in electoral democracies to undercount how many of their citizens had perished to a global pandemic. Because somehow, somehow, counting the dead, counting our own dead would bring shame upon us. So the governments decided to not count them, to disavow their own dead. This is the underside of a sacrificial politics. A politics that harbors within it a desire to sacrifice will count every dead, every murder simply as a sacrificial offering. Your rivers could be stacked with dead bodies. Your funeral sites, your incinerating machines, all could have been backlogged with dead bodies. Everyone can see the dead around them, but they shall not be counted because they are part of a larger sacrificial offering we make to our own political stability, to our own sense of civility even. And that undercounting is because those human beings are not even accounted for by the law. They have been expelled from the rule of law itself, as it were. Quite simply, law does not belong to them and they do not belong to the law and they shall not be counted. So the right to have rights is peculiar precisely because Arendt wants us to remember that expulsion from humanity is not an aberration, it's the law. Law cannot be thought of without this desire to expel. And every time we do that, we are expressing in some ways our enchantment, not with lawlessness that this is, but with the law. And therein lies the antinomy. I want to come back to B.R. Ambedkar. For me, in the way you have spoken of B.R. Ambedkar, both when we spoke of the Constitution and annihilation, is of a man whose capacity to imagine a legal framework that in fact transcends these limits of the law while remaining alive to the fact that by its nature, the law will not allow that transcendence, seems extraordinary. As a citizen, we are often just almost blindly sort of trained to see the law as the site of where fairness will come to us, you know, or presumably justice, but, but fairness at the very least, protection will come to us. But institutionalized forms of relating with other human beings seem almost explicitly to be to protect the institution itself, not people. Does the law care about protecting people? 
or does the law care about protecting the law? What is Ambedkar's vision of a politics, and I would say a fraternal politics, in which the care is for people, not for the institution? Ambedkar has a word that he starts to use in the 1940s and then in the 50s he writes more about it and he often leaves this word untranslated because somewhere he he must have believed that the word friendship does not adequately capture, let alone the word fraternity, uh, neither adequately captures the, the moral imagination at the heart of this word, which is the word metri. Uh, the word metri is, is powerful because it brings in fraternity, but disabuses the word fraternity of its masculine undertone or overtone. In the end, fraternity is always of the brothers. And Ambedkar wants something of a transgender conception of political friendship, something that cuts through the boundaries that we create in law and we use law to create these boundaries between not simply people with property and people without property, but also people with different sexes. And one thing we, we, we now know, not just in philosophical arguments and historical discourses, but by simple experience, that law is unthinkable without a certain strain of profound, almost uncurable misogyny. To belong to a system of unwritten laws, to belong to something like a caste or a racial order, is to always belong or subscribe to, at the very least, a misogynistic cult. Caste is a misogynistic cult. It, it thrives in the hatred of women, which is why it is important to remember historically that um, Ambedkar resigns in, from Nehru's cabinet after his uh, proposal or this legislation he wanted passed called the Hindu Code Bill, which had a very basic idea at its heart. You can not destroy caste, but you can at least dismantle its founding principle by simply letting women inherit property. And the government simply did not move on that. So it's a, it's a, it's a lesson in, uh, in this nexus between property and sex. It is a lesson in this nexus between war and body. It is a lesson in this nexus between inequality and sexual violence. All of which are at times carried out within the rubric and within the sanction of the legal order. Sometimes law, through lawlessness. Some, we often know, for example, that, that marauding armies um, will often use rape as an instrument of power, but also of conquest. Right? So while we, in law, as we know, bar these practices or outlaw these practices, they continue. They persist. And this is why someone like Ambedkar has a deep skepticism that something like caste will simply go away by the law because caste is the law. Caste is not one system among others that can be outlawed. Caste is the framework within which we think of the law. It is a cognitive system, not simply 
a juridical order. It is both the language of constitutionality and it is something extra-constitutional to which a constitution will have never have adequate redress. And that is why I think it is important to remember that Ambedkar uses the word liberty rarely, almost as a slogan when he says liberty, equality, fraternity. What he really is talking about, as he says in Annihilation of Caste, is freedom. To, to think about liberalism is to understand that it privileges liberty, not freedom. And these are two very different things. So let's go right into that distinction that you are drawing very acutely between liberty and freedom. What is that distinction between two words we often use interchangeably, but that clearly are not interchangeable? In terms of genealogy, the, the, the distinction simply is that liberty is a modern political ideal that cannot be separated from the rise of modern property relations. Uh, liberty can be divided into negative liberty, which is the absence of any constraint. And some uh, Republican theorists have argued that there is also a positive side to liberty, which is the liberty to cultivate virtues, the liberty to pursue excellence, the liberty to make oneself happier by gathering or acquiring skills. Negative liberty is simply the absence of any external constraint that does not come from my own sense of obligation, right? So this is, this is in some senses the rule of unwritten laws. Negative liberty is the rule of unwritten laws and the absence of external constraints. Positive liberty is the liberty to cultivate virtues, to make ourselves better human beings, um, perhaps even to pursue happiness, let alone or, uh, in fact, also the good life. Right? Now, in each of these, or both of these articulations of liberty as positive and negative, we assume that the human subject is whole. We assume that the human subject is a person. We assume that the human subject is almost born equal, even if they are born with differential capacities and capabilities. Freedom is a disavowal or a distancing of the human subject from this legal or juridical conception of personhood. In, in, in many ways, freedom, just as liberty is indissociable from liberalism and from property, freedom can sometimes feel indissociable from the religious traditions. You become free only through a surrender to one and one God. Uh, that would be a claim that is often made in the monotheistic traditions. In the Indian tradition, the word that comes closest to the law is dharma. We often use dharma as religion, but actually dharma is also a set of laws. And this is not a coincidence. This is why I think your, your um, introduction of Ambedkar into this, this conversation is so important because it is in his thought that dharma finally finds, the, the, the notion of dharma finally finds an adequate enough expression as first and foremost as a system of injunctions and laws. Not in, in simply classical terms, 
if you look at the Indian epic tradition, dharma has always been a system of injunctions. It has never been religion. And it has been conceded as much. But it is only in Ambedkar that the connection between our absolute voluntary servitude and our religiosity is made. It is in him that this connection between religious belief and total obedience to the law finds the most articulate expression of its yielding. What does this bond, this nexus, if you will, between religiosity and subordination and surrender mean? He says it means caste as a rule of law itself. And Ambedkar never tires of reminding us that the rule of law will not eradicate caste. Caste is the horizon of our rules. Caste is the rule of law. And he leaves us with a set of questions, therefore, um, that are important to perhaps try and frame explicitly. If we, we are to really come to this, this distinction you are, uh, you are trying to amplify between liberty and, and, and freedom. And, and the question is fairly, uh, fairly simple, I think. I mean, can we rescue the idea? Can we rescue the idea of freedom today? Uh, with all that it means in often its corrupt forms, let's not, let's not forget that freedom too is corruptible. Let us not forget that when it comes to political concepts and vocabularies, the global right, the fascistic right, often begins with freedom. Almost all conservative traditions privilege freedom over equality and justice. There is a reason for that. Because freedom is in that sense, like courage, a profoundly ambiguous concept. The most conservative, anti-democratic even, traditions of thinking begin with freedom as the only ideal of human life. So let us not mistake ourselves about freedom. Right? Sometimes freedom simply means freedom of the markets. Sometimes freedom can simply mean freedom that is allowed by the free movement of capital. Sometimes freedom simply means freedom of the corporations, not of the subjects. Freedom itself has an underside, but what it really gives us, precisely because of this ambiguity, is a way to rescue a sense of being human in which my humanity is dependent, absolutely dependent, only insofar as you too are human, only insofar as you too are equal in your humanity to mine. Only in that sense can freedom become the basis of a new moral and a democratic imagination. So we therefore need to be aware that while freedom could in its corrupt forms be a function of different legal attributes, strength, sovereignty, liberty itself. What do we need to make freedom democratic again is the idea that freedom must, in the final instance, exist in opposition to the law, to the laws of subjectivity, to the laws of punishment, to the laws of obligation. That freedom in the end is, uh, to use another of Aaron's expression, the freedom to be free. Right? This is why in the American tradition, which comes eventually also to some anti-colonial tradition, civil disobedience is the heart of our civic humanity, not the law, not the rule of law. It is disobedience rather than obedience 
that is the foundation of freedom right and so to make freedom democratic again without the violence we give ourselves the right to perpetrate or perpetuate in its name what would that freedom look like without the freedom we give ourselves to perpetuate and perpetrate violence and still thinking with ambedkar can freedom even and especially political freedom be anchored in our moral imagination or as you were very uh, astutely pointing out in a fraternal imagination away from the structures of law and office are we something more than bureaucrats think of arendt's book eichmann in jerusalem adolf eichmann is being tried for crimes against humanity as one of the top nazi officials who was responsible for timely and punctual departure of the trains to to the camps and there he is sitting in israel being tried for crimes against humanity and there arent is listening in to these proceedings and she notes down that even a nazi like adolf eichmann is citing immanuel kant's work on moral duty and that chapter that devastating eighth chapter of that book eichmann in jerusalem is titled and this is a title for our times duties of a law abiding citizen adolf eichmann is nothing more and nothing less than someone who follows the law he looks at the clock he has completely internalized his sense of duty and most catastrophically perhaps if you are a political philosopher he's spouting immanuel kant's notion of duty he's reading kant and he's quoting kant and he believes wrongly of course that his very personhood depends on following the law and here the final law comes from one person one man in this case adolf hitler and this is the sense in which we were saying in our previous episode we must not let man swallow the citizen because that conception of the law in which one person is the lawgiver in ambedkar case in ambedkar's case this lawgiver is manu who gives us the manu smriti who we abide by but who we also kill for we cannot let law become the source of all our moral attributes and our moral compulsions or our moral excuses to be evil right so the question then is if law is obedience what is freedom if law is surrender if law is obligation if law is duty as eichmann says if law is simply office if following the law means being an automaton what kind of human subject is left behind what kind of a broken humanity are we left with to think of that broken humanity and it is not a coincidence ambedkar calls uses the word dalit for that broken humanity dalit being ground down like lentils the root word there is dal that is crushed what kind of a broken humanity does law yield what kind of a broken humanity are we left behind to gather the pieces of and most importantly for us if the law does not allow us to gather the pieces of this broken humanity what does and the answer therefore in lies in the notion of 
matri or fraternity, if you will, but mostly the kind of freedom in responsibility. We were saying uh, two episodes ago that annihilation uh, in its third mode for Ambedkar is responsibility. Annihilation is refusal. Annihilation is destruction. And most powerfully, annihilation is responsibility. Can our freedom today, our democratic freedom today be pegged to responsibility, to moral judgment, instead of righteousness, of smugness and snobbery, instead of or in place of liberal propriety and property, instead of liberal civility and etiquette? Can freedom be pegged to responsibility? Can freedom be anchored in love and forgiveness instead of possession and conquest? Because that is the other thing liberalism has been mired in, in conquest. Conquest of bodies, but conquest of territories too. And at the backdrop, I think, of, of all this that we are trying to unpack is uh, our global moment. Our global moment in which we wage an almost civil and often uncivil war on the bodies of our fellow citizens, on the homes of our fellow citizens demolishing entire towns because at some point the law decreed quite lawlessly that they were lawless. We tend to think of law as something that will bring rule and therefore we think the rule of law is the greatest achievement of any thriving democracy. But what we tend to forget is the rule of law comes with a huge price. And that price is our expulsion from humanity itself. There are two words and two concepts that you have led us, I think, almost relentlessly into with where you have closed. And that is both what the law has also yielded. One of our N-words, neglect, socially, humanly, institutionally, state-sanctioned neglect at global scales. And this entire new form, it's a neologism you have coined, this entire new form that marks this mutation of democracy, which is our other N-word, neo-democracy. And it is crucial to understand why, and we will come to this as we come to our next episode, the letter N, why you see this not as being the end of democracy, but a mutation into this entirely new political form. We'll be back with Mutant and a really, really crucial examination of this present political moment with our next episode. Come back here, join us and listen.